G'day, George. G'day, Brady boy. Welcome to another episode of Float Float Your Boat. boat. Did you like my intro? No, it was shithouse. I've got a... um, you know, I, you know, pick up the tempo a little bit. Just sound excited, like I keep. T- <laughs> like no, I keep I'm. T- I'm doing. I'm so excited. I'm doing my. Yeah, God, not again. You're so excited. You're gonna wet your pants one day. <laughs> it's a few times in the week that I'd actually get excited, Brett. Lucky your mu- <laughs> lucky your um, wife bought you some pull-ups, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm trialing them for when when I become a big boy in the nursing home next year, right? <laughs> I need to use them all the time. Have you got a yeah. joke? I've got a joke. Oh, yeah? What's the difference between a hippo and a zippo? Uh, no idea. One's really heavy, the other's a little lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is, yeah, you are. You know, I, I, I could just see, I'm, I'm going to, we, we should actually create a little, another podcast, right? Or have an episode where we just invite all the people that we know who have bad bad dad jokes and just keep going. One joke each. In fact, that's what we should put on our new thing is uh, on our new um, invite for new um, guests is that they mm-hmm. have to come up with one dad joke that they tell at the start of the episode. Yeah, one dad joke. So yeah. you say you haven't got one, right? Oh, man, the, 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 the issue for me is I can't remember jokes. I love them at the time, but I can't remember them. Well, there's so many of them, I guess. Yeah. I've seen some beauties. I put, a, I put another good one up. Um, yeah, where is it? You know, how, you know how you see those things on, on Facebook where it says, you know, pick the first letter of, you know, your name and the last letter and it gives you your rock star, da-da-da, name? The f- no, no that wasn't it the first... Um, street you lived in and the name of your first pet. There's loads of different ones, but I saw this one yep. which I thought was really good. Your quarantine alcohol alcoholic name is your first name followed by your last name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that that's just yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. Anyway, and anyway, we should uh, we should do the uh, preamble and get on with this episode. So who have hey, we? Um, so Georgie boy, who hey, have we got on today? Because hey, hey, I'm hey, excited. Hey, 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 <laughs> hang on, hang on. What does what do sprinters eat uh, before they before a race? Sago. Nothing. <laughs> they they fast. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. You have got uh, one in you. Oh, it's you know. Oh, why did the, why did the scarecrow win an award? I don't know, George. Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. <laughs> this is terrible. We could do this all day. We could. I, I know. Let's I, not do it all day. What did the elephant man say when he found out he had a receding hairline? What's that? That's just great. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thinking man's joke, right? Yes. What kind of bagel can fly? I don't know, George. What's a plain a... bagel. Ah, boom, boom. boom okay, boom. come on, get on with this intro. Ah. Who have we got on today, Georgie boy? Because I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I'll, throw in a, I'll throw in a new set of steak knives as well. <laughs> Will that make you excited? Where do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, stop making me laugh, Brett. Okay. Uh, okay, because uh, you'll, 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 you'll make me poo my pants. 
<laughs> you got your pull up. <laughs> you, you can't see me, but I'm actually in my undies. Oh, Christ. I'm, giving up. I'm, I'm glad giving I can. <laughs> I'm giving up on life. Your it's poor wife. COVID. It's COVID 19. <laughs> giving up on life. <laughs> can't, can barely muster enough energy to get out of, my, out of bed. <laughs> Uh, okay, serious now. Come on, because this uh, is a yeah. serious interview. It is serious. It's 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 about addictions, uh, Brett, and how we uh, how, how people are just loaded with addictions. Have you, what have you your, got? Have you what got... are your addictions, Brett? God, where do I start? <laughs> apart apart from bad dad jokes. Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm the sort of person that has an addiction to everything. If there's if there's a packet of biscuits in the house, I have to eat all of them. Yeah. Or if there's a dozen beers, I have to drink all of them, and I do. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm like that too. You know, I can't just stop at one. I, I just have to finish them off and get them out of the house. Maybe we should ask her that. You know, if we're abnormal, or is that a fairly well, ask, normal uh, sort of thing? Ask Ask Hubert. We didn't even mention her name. Oh right, <laughs> Tara Hurster. Yes, Tara Hurster runs the Tara Clinic, which strangely sounds like her name, but it's actually an acronym. So she'll explain what that what that means. She will. Um, but she spent her whole professional career, um, you know, disentangling people from addictions. And uh, what was he? What was he very? Her one line was very interesting to me. It's um, people who suffer trauma and disconnection have addictions. Right. Well, yeah. Well, look, you know. Um, well, well, can you apply that to your world, to your life? Yeah, probably. But you know, let's 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 see what she's got to say, not us. Yeah, can it's I about say her, that, not about. Can I us. say that I'm excited? <laughs> no, Georgie boy, because I'm excited. <laughs> okay, let's get her in. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Tara Hurster, welcome to our Zoom studio. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. I'm really well. How are you guys going? You, you look very chirpy. We're, we're going r- rustically where I'm... Rustically, I'm, yes, because I'm I'm in my undies from the waist down. No one can see that. It's a very <laughs> cold room, so I put a jacket on. And what about you with your stupid hat, Brett? Uh, I could make a joke about my fez, but I won't. Your fez has seen has seen a seen quite a quite a history of you the last thirty years. Yeah, I've got I've got a number of fezes. I've got um, maybe oh, have you? I've got like you know half well at least half a dozen because mm-hmm. I used to wear them on stage. Often. So Tara, 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 we we introduced you as the addiction specialist. Um, you know, we you 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 seem to have a bit of a bit of a history there. Some 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 awesome clients that you've helped over the years. I'm sure. Um, how about Brett's addiction with his fezzes? 
does that does it rank? Does it count as an addiction? Fizz, please. <laughs> well, I oh, that's 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 a bit of a, an interesting question because I guess the the way that you know whether something is an addiction is if the action or the behavior or the substance is getting in the way of you being able to live a full, rich and meaningful life. So my question would be, I guess, passed back to you guys. Does your <laughs> experience with your fares get in the way of you living a full, rich and meaningful life? Never. It hasn't ever happened to date, but, you know, it could, it could start to get worse. I could- although, although when you go to bed at night, your wife does say, could you please take that stupid hat off? That's right. <laughs> Amongst other stupid look, things that I'm not aware of bed. Brett, it's not about you and your hat. Tara, Tara, tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, obviously you had a like an ordinary childhood. Uh, was it was it, <laughs> well, was it? Was it loaded with addictions? <laughs> and then you decided to break a habit or two? You know, Tara, before we started this interview, George said you need to be a little bit more serious today. And so far, George is on a roll, all right? Mm, mm, yeah, well, hey, as far as I'm concerned, there are no holds barred here for me. So no, you can ask whatever question you want to ask and I, I reserve the right to say no. <laughs> well, we, we, we will. We That's will. good. So, Excellent. So, so explain, Excellent. Explain to us how you came to be where you are today. Um, yeah. Well, basically the universe decided I was going to work in addiction and I kind of just went along for the ride. It, it, was, it was really quite cool. And uh, there's, there's a lot of really famous and incredible people that have said this thing where you don't understand how the dots are going to line up until you look backwards. And uh, I think the, the one person that, that said that that comes to mind is um, Steve Jobs. And that's really true for my situation is I didn't realize that each of the steps along the way that I was that I was doing actually were leading to me being where I am today. So, the sh- do you want the abridged version or the full version? Let's 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 step right back to when you were young. <laughs> oh, where did go. you grow up? Well, I grew up in Camden, so okay. uh, about an hour southwest of Sydney. That's amazing. You can string more than five words together. Camden is a really, really beautiful place. We just lost Uh, half of our supporters. (laughs) No, no, I don't mean that. I love Camden. Well, yeah, Camden uh, Camden is actually, I guess people call it a place of old money. So there's, um, it's where the first Merino sheep were brought over from the UK when, I don't don't think it was first fleet, however, it was quite early on in, in the history of, um, of yeah, settlers coming over from the UK, they they brought a lot of sheep there. So it's um, there's quite a lot of really beautiful sort of manners and things around the area. It's quite nice actually. It's a beautiful that- place to grow up. It's just not a great place to have a, a teenage, early adulthood experience because the majority of what's there is just the pubs. So what does that well- say about you? When you were a teenager, <laughs> well, uh, I I was the person that was writing to the the council saying, uh, "You guys really need to sort out your youth um, 
your youth support programs here and actually have some enjoyable things for young people because this is ridiculous and there's nothing for us to do. So why do you think there's a lot of people using drugs right now? And I received a very formal letter back saying, thanks for your opinion. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so what kind of things did you see happening out there in, with the, amongst the youth? Uh, a lot of boredom. Really? And, that's, and that's probably endemic throughout Australia, particularly regional Australia. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I was working as, a, as an outreach youth worker here in the eastern suburbs of Sydney as well uh, before I started my psychology degree. And I saw the exact same thing here. It, the problem really for young people, I think, stems from a whole heap of boredom and then also a lot of presence and not a lot of presence. So being bought stuff rather than building connection. And uh, a lot of the things that come out of addiction is addiction is the opposite of connection. When you don't have something to do or you don't have something to belong to or something to work towards, uh, then quite often it's, it, uh, that lack is kind of filled with uh, substance use, um, or different behaviours that are kind of associated with acting out. Uh, and, yeah, I saw, a, I saw a lot of that when I was growing up. Um, I remember when I was in year nine or year 10, I was, <laughs> was one of those really interesting kind of bridges. So I started smoking when I was very young because I thought it stunted your growth and I'm over six foot tall now, so I'm either <laughs> really happy that I did it or it's a load of crap. Um, <laughs> Gee, you could have been like eight you foot. You could right? have been. You could, could have, have been a basketballer. Totally. <laughs> However, there was this really kind of interesting gap that I was building because I smoked, so I would spend a lot of time with the quote unquote naughty kids of the of the school, um, and then I would also do my homework in the library at lunchtime or hang out with the teachers and ask them more scientific questions because I just loved learning. And I remember when I was in yeah, year nine or year 10, I was noticing that there was this kid from year seven who all of a sudden would just disappear. And I would ask him, you know, where, where do you go? What, why, why aren't you around at lunchtime or where have you been all last week? And he would talk to me about the, um, uh, the detentions that he was on or the suspensions that he had because, quote, unquote, the teachers hate me. And I would sit with him and I would talk to him about, okay, what, what are you doing that's resulting in the teachers hating you? Because, I mean, the teachers don't hate me, so what are you doing that's different? And after about, I don't know, six months or so of us kind of chatting and just getting him to see things from someone else's perspective, I basically said to him, you know, if if you're walking into a classroom and throwing a chair across the room and throwing your pencil case at someone else's head in the middle of a, of a lesson, a teacher has a small amount of, in, a specific amount of information to teach a specific number of people in a small amount of time. If there was one asshole that was getting in the way of me doing that, I'd kick you out too. And when he realized that, he started to sort of explore other ways of handling his behavior in the classroom. And uh, yeah, we, I remember we, we had a little experiment. I said to him, why don't you just 
you know, trick the teachers and test them out and just go into the classroom and say nothing and just sit there and do your work all session and then see what happens. And he came to me the next day and he's like, holy crap, they didn't even like pick on me at all. And I thought, wow, amazing. So that's kind of how I ended up becoming a psychologist because I saw my interaction with that kid going, well, if I can do that without training, imagine what I can do. So did you start charging at school, like <laughs> the back, at the back of the toilet blocks, you know, come and see I, I, Tara's, go to Tara's well, clinic? Tara, forgive me, forgive me for saying this, but he wasn't terribly bright. Who? That little kid. that that kid in year seven, he couldn't work out that his actions were were actually aggravating people. It's interesting, actually, because a lot of the time, what happens is we have this. Um, how do I put this? Sometimes, sometimes you can be really close to a situation and and not be able to see how you are actually. Uh, impacting or uh, being ex- being impacted by the situation, and when when we have someone else that's on the outside looking in, quite often they can see things more clearly. You might have heard that that saying, you know, you can't see the the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees or whatever it is. It's that same thing. Is I notice that whenever I walk into a classroom, I get picked on. I'm classified as the naughty kid, so now I have an identity. Once I have that identity, I now need to live up to that expectation because if you're going to yell at me anyway when I didn't do anything wrong, then I'll just do something wrong because that's fun, right? So what tends to happen is, yeah, we create this identity for ourselves that we believe so strongly because it's been reinforced by those around us for however long. And it takes someone on the outside to kind of go, hang on a second, let's look at this differently and try something different. And I guess as well, communicating in a way that's effective to the person that you're speaking to. Because if I was just another teacher saying to him, well, shut up and sit down and do your work, he'd probably tell me to jump. However, I, the way that I did it with him was I made it a game. I made it something fun and I made it an us versus them situation because he thought it was them versus him. So it just, yeah. Imagine Kids, um, kids want to be engaged. I imagine this is a precursor to how you um, deal, in, deal with people in your professional life. But, yeah. but, we'll, but we'll get there eventually. So, <laughs> so did you, uh, so after high school, uh, so before we get there, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have an older sister. She's 11 years older than me. Okay. And so my taller, sister was is she in, taller than you? Oh, uh, no, <laughs> she's not. And she didn't smoke? <laughs> she did and she still oh. does. <laughs> okay, there you go. Mm. Yeah, so it does work. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you finished school and... What happened after school? Where, where to next? Well, I, I thought if I went straight to university, I would probably murder people and figured that that wasn't the best option. So I took a year off and travelled around the world and worked and did a whole heap of fun stuff and learnt a lot about myself and about other people. And, yeah, then went to uni for four years in my undergrad, finished that, thought I'd murder people if I went straight to postgrad, so took some time off again. Uh, I really just took my time and I, 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 I made sure that I was doing what was right for me along the way. Um, 
but yeah, my, my undergrad psychology degree was the wildest experience. It was, it was really quite bizarre. I remember going in to the first tutorial and they said, you know, the first year is going to be extremely boring because this is a very popular course to, for, for people to do. And they want to try and kick people out that don't really want to be psychologists. And uh, sure enough, at the beginning of second year, it was only half as big as what it was at the first year. And it was really boring. I really hated it. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I just, I found the, the puzzle of the human mind uh, really intriguing and the the natural kind of part of me that loves to watch people loves to sort of sit by and wonder what are, what is that conversation about and you know, all of those things I now understand what's happening because I have I guess a language around what I'm seeing um yeah it was it was just great it was really hard really really hard but it was great. I loved it. How many years of study was it? Uh, so four years of undergrad. And then there are three different ways that you can become a psychologist. Uh, so ultimately, you need to complete six years in total. So the first way that you can become a psychologist is doing the four plus two program, which is four years of undergrad and then two years of essentially like a internship kind of Thing. So you you work and you have supervision and you're learning. Um, the second way, which is the way that uh, I went through, was the five plus one. So I did four years of undergrad, one year of postgrad, and one year of internship. And then the other way is a master's program, which is four years of undergrad and then two years of master's. And depending on which master's program you want to do, uh, then depends on what. I, I guess, title you get. So if you do a clinical master's, you become a clinical psychologist. If you do a forensic master's, you become a forensic psychologist, all of that. So you, you were quite clear on the, on the specific field that you were going to go into, yeah? Uh, no, actually. Ooh. I thought I wanted to work with kids and young people because of, I guess, all of those experiences that I had growing up. Mm. Uh, and my first placement was in a primary school in St. Ives. And I, I really, while I loved working with the young people, the kids, you know, I had the primary school kids, so it was mm -hmm. loads of fun. However, I found it really challenging, one, to deal with the fact that my client is the child. However, the, Dealing with I the guess... Parents. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You 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 put that so nicely. I I can just imagine what you went through. I can I can certainly I, imagine. You know, I mean, it's it's probably it, it. I mean, I'm guessing that one of your one of your grand observations was that the parents needed more help than the children. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We know of this. They don't issue certificates for parents uh, for parenting, do they? Like, you know, they don't issue degrees for, for, for that. Uh, you know, anyone can be a parent and surprisingly anyone is. <laughs> yeah. And it's a really hard job. And, you know, at one point in my career prior to opening the Tara Clinic, I was working as uh, uh, kind of at the pointy end of child protection. So just before 
uh, family and community services, so FACS, were involved and would then ultimately remove the child from the home. Um, I was working in an organisation that, that were working with parents to try and, I guess, sort out the problems that were there prior to the child needing to be removed. Mm. Um, and I learned in that, in that organisation about good enough parenting and good enough parenting really is that, that if you get it good enough for, you know, the majority of the time, then the kid's going to be okay. Anything else on top of that is a bonus. So when we talk about good enough parenting, it's, you know, physical safety, emotional safety, um, being fed, watered, kept warm and clean, having access to education, having access to medical um, appointments and things like that. Uh, as long as you're meeting all of that criteria, it's good enough. Mm-hmm. When you start to look at the other things, uh, that's where it, it's a very difficult job. Parenting is very challenging. Yeah, it is because you have the category below good enough. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, you have the category where above good enough uh, just good enough where where um, kids still go in a direction completely unexpected absolutely and, and that's a, I guess you've seen that right mm, mm, absolutely so uh, I, I, I take it that had nothing to do with addictions I well I suppose it did right I mean, what did you what did you notice what did you notice that there's you can't you can't throw a blanket a blanket uh, category over everyone can you no, the while while there are um, while there are a number of commonalities within the presentation of substance abuse and addiction, uh, there's not certainty in that. So if you if you mix blue and yellow together, you're going to get green. However, in this space, it's not like that. It's not if you do this and this, then you're definitely going to have an addiction. It doesn't work like that. The, I guess this comes back into how awesome the brain is and that we have genetic predispositions, we have environmental factors, we have learned behaviour, we have uh, societal norms, we have societal expectations, we have trauma. Um, uh, you know, there are so many different things that come together that create the individual that we are today. Mm. And all parts of that story and, you know, there's some really interesting research coming out at the moment actually about intergenerational trauma. So, for example, as a woman, I the research has shown that I experienced on a cellular level whatever was happening to my grandma when she was pregnant with my mum. Through mitochondrial DNA, which doesn't change, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> so a direct but, – but, you know, I mean – Tara, you know, I, I, yes, I guess, I guess there is validity there as well. But you know, some skeptics would say. I mean, first time I heard about that, I, I said, "Well, that's a bit of cock and bull," because you know, I mean, at some point, you know, why don't all the experiences get passed down? Like every single one, all the good ones, or and you know, there'd, there'd be an overwhelming amount of good experiences that would um, flood. I mean be passed down from one generation to another right absolutely and usually they're the ones that don't get noticed because they're nice 
what kind of traumas were passed on? Well, I guess they don't. Your DNA doesn't come with a manual that you can oh. read and see the list of things that you that you got in the lucky dip. Oh, unfortunately, <laughs> got it. I got it. But by now, you would have you know had some introspection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you know it's it's interesting to look at uh, how each individual's experiences and how that has been passed down, kind of presents itself in, yep. in, in your life. Uh, you, you know, the way that your parents were parented can have some correlation with the way they parent you. Um, the way that their belief systems were built can tend to rub off on you. There's a real uh, interesting kind of period of time where in your development so in just natural normal development you go from having the values of your parents to now starting to kind of question that and see is that really what I value or what's important to me or do I have my own values and that can be I guess in any capacity it could be let's just say that Mum really finds uh, cleanliness a strong value, and dad finds communication, so like honesty, a real strong value. Then I can look at that and go, okay, do I still want to maintain those values, or is that perhaps not as important to me? And I want to um, focus on wealth, right? So it's it's about, I guess knowing that just because we have a predisposition to something or there is the opportunity that we might take that on, it doesn't mean that it's definitely going to happen. Like I was saying before, it's not like yellow and blue makes green. Um, the, the research has shown that uh, if there is someone in your direct kind of family, so mom or dad, kind of like really close uh, that is living with alcoholism that genetically you have a predisposition to alcoholism however there is so many aspects of that that impact on whether or not you actually end up having an alcohol problem like have I now learned how to cope with stress in a more effective way mm. or do I live in an environment where alcohol isn't there so I don't drink it because I couldn't be bothered or are my friendship circle people who don't always go out to drink on a, on a weekend. So I'm not really forced or not forced, um, encouraged into that societal norm, right? There are a lot of things that can come into play. So I guess to answer your question about what traumas have come through my life and presented themselves uh, from my grandmother, I really can't tell you because uh, I've done a lot of work on myself to be able to be the person that I am today. And so did she and so did my mum and everybody else that came before me. <laughs> Is one of those traits spilling food on yourself? Oh, my God, don't even talk to me about spilling food on Sorry? myself. Sorry? <laughs> did, uh, did I miss something? 
<laughs> you're not you're not eating in front of me, so what happened? I'm not eating right now. No, she's um, not allowed to eat on camera. <laughs> no, I'd love to. That's one I'm, of my addictions. Yeah, I'm really not allowed to eat in front of people. My so much so that my partner even bought me a bib, one of those bibs with like the the. Oh, you love that the the baby bib. Yeah. Yes, yes, and he said, "Can you please wear this when you eat?" And I, <laughs> I, I still refuse to. I still refuse oh. to. I I will say, however, my uh, my yeah, my uh, dry cleaning bill is through the roof because the amount of times I get turmeric on my white shirt, <laughs> I, I just I have nothing to say for myself. Actually, this top I'm wearing today just came back from the dry cleaner as go. a result of a turmeric spill. A turmeric accident. Yes. <laughs> so so is that possible? Like is that trait possibly from your grandmother or your grandfather or? Interesting. <laughs> so my family's background is German. So my Oma and Opa, I don't remember them ever really dropping food. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it wasn't, it's not really something that I, I see them doing regularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, were, they, weren't, they weren't talking to you with, with mouths full of, full of food, were they? Full oh. of sauerkraut and, and pork knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, that's that was definitely a regular dish on on the table. However, no, I didn't usually. We we were taught very early not to speak with our with our mouthful. My issue is the spoon to mouth moment. <laughs> it's 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 in that 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 period of of um oh, the the dead man zone. You ah, know? The, yeah, right. Between between the actual safety of the bowl and the, the, the safety sp- of the mouth and that bit in the, no there's air yeah right there's a <laughs> there's an air travelling part exactly. I was just going to say so back to the back to your story so you finished university um, and you worked uh, various jobs when did the Tara Clinic start Well, the Tara Clinic started. Uh, as an idea a long time before I opened. Um, so yeah. I opened in 2017 um, and I did that actually through the NICE program. So NICE stands for New Enterprise Incentive Scheme. And uh, this is a really awesome government incentive that helps people to start small businesses while learning how to manage a business, how to run a business, how to build a business, and also accessing uh, really awesome mentoring for 12 months throughout that process. I didn't know that existed. That's great. Yeah, it's been around for many years, George. I remember going back to one of my first businesses. Um, I considered doing the NICE program because I think going way back, they gave you a, a, a like a, a funding thing, right? Yes. So if you are able to get the, I think it's the new start allowance. Um, if you can, if you qualify for that payment, then you can have a payment through Nice for, for the first nine months of your business. And wow. I, that, that was really, really helpful for me as well. Really helpful. It just meant that I didn't have to do things, um, it meant that I didn't need to do things just to bring money into yeah. the business. I was yeah. able to do things for the business because mm. that for me has always been the most important thing to ensure that 
the business is thriving, that I'm able to provide as much support to as many people as possible. And that takes money. Mm. Sure. It does. Yeah. It does. So you set up your, your first clinic where? Uh, so I've been based in Bondi Junction uh, through since since I started. And uh, yeah, I basically the Tara Clinic supports busy and successful people to regain control over their substance abuse and addiction problems while mm. leaving the guilt and shame behind. Mm. It's, that's, that's a re- really good tagline, by the way. It's <clears throat> that sounds like a mission statement there, Tara. Well, it's, it's what I believe it's what, it's what it's about. Uh, You know how Nike has just do it. Yep. Yeah. Well, the Tara clinic has recovery your way because that's what this is about. It's about providing people with an option to engage in treatment in the way that's going to work for them. And not everybody is ready or wants to have complete abstinence. And that's why harm minimization is so awesome because it allows people to have access to support without necessarily having the restrictions of needing to be completely abstinent. Um, so let's, oh, sorry, George. You let's, let's have a look at that. I mean, obviously every, 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 uh, do you call them patients? Clients. Clients. Every client has a different addiction. And, and how do you address them? And, I mean, obviously you have to do a lot of one-on-one, right? Mm. So you're limited by your time. How do you get scale in your, in your model? Yeah. So yeah. part of what, <laughs> sadly, the, the COVID-19 situation has uh, quite significantly impacted on the way that the business itself was was going to be growing this year. Right. So last year I launched my first uh, outpatient um, program called Empowered Recovery. And uh, yeah, it's it's been working really well and people have been enjoying, well, telling me that they're enjoying it. However, what the next step was going to be was uh, doing this in groups because what that means is I can do a reduced rate so that there's, it's a bit more accessible to people. And also some people really enjoy group work. There is so much benefit that can come out of group work with, you know, just a sense of community, a sense of togetherness, a sense of I'm not alone. And uh, you can also learn from each other so much more than what you can just simply learn from one person. However, the, uh, yeah, it was, it was due to start on the 25th of March. Oh, your timing was perfect. Perfect timing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's look, Tara, Tara, I'm sure you'll get, get, you'll get to the other end of the tunnel and, and your business will flourish because I'm sure that right now in a lot of homes, people are discovering new addictions. Yes. The, the news is even saying things that have, it, it's, 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 it's sad. It's sad and it's alarming. Mm. You know, the statistics that are coming out at the moment, um, 40% more alcohol sales uh, in the first couple of weeks of COVID, uh, 70% of people who were, um, who were interviewed said that they were drinking earlier than what they usually had started drinking. George. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, 
<laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> well, that makes seventy percent out of the three of us. <laughs> there you go, boom. <laughs> yeah. So it's you know uh, what what I am in the process of doing. Uh, I'm. I don't have specific dates to be able to give you or your listeners now. However, as soon as I know, I'll let you know. Um, however, I am in the process of creating more online programs and online membership support options, which yep. can be uh, both self-directed learning as well as supported learning. And yep. I, I really believe that the, the most important aspect of early recovery is learning how to manage stress and distress more effectively because without those sorts of management strategies then of course we're going to drink or use drugs or gamble or have sex or eat some food so it's stress and distress that are, that are the triggers in your experience absolutely okay so so at which point at which point does something become an addiction well, would you like me to read off literally the diagnostic criteria? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Okay. One second. Can you, can you put a bit of stomach for a, a minute? I need to stand up to get the book. Can you put a bit put a bit of life into it? <laughs> of course I can. Of course I can. Everything everything that I do is lively. Come on. You might think that book's interesting, Tara, but lots wouldn't. <laughs> well. I guess the reason that I would like to read this out is I did, I read this out in another podcast that I did, I think it was a year ago, a year and a half ago. And as I was reading it out, the, the person that was interviewing me, she looked at me and she said, holy shit, that is everybody that I know. I said, yeah, yeah, it really can be. Um, so it's, I guess it's just helpful. I'm all about uh, information you know the more the more information that you have at your disposal the more decision making access you have you know you can you can do things when mm. you when you know what's going on because mm. um, quite often I have people say to me uh what you know how much is too much um mm. what when when is it a problem when is it not a problem and I think they're really really valid questions so this uh, I'll do it for alcohol because I guess are you doing that are you doing this specifically for us <laughs> hold on can you just hold on I've just got to get a drink <laughs> listen to this <laughs> yeah you'd have to fortify yourself I'm under stress <laughs> I feel like coming on <laughs> I believe in you you've got this okay, go on go on all right so the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder sounds very big and scary all right a problematic pattern of alcohol use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following occurring within a 12-month period okay one alcohol is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended <laughs> i already see the <laughs> at least twice in uh -oh. the year <laughs> in a year so so at least two of these things in a year in, in a, a year. Month. wow mm -hmm. the second one there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use three a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain alcohol use alcohol or recover from its effects four craving or a strong desire or urge to use alcohol 
five, recurrent alcohol use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Six, continued alcohol use depend, uh, sorry, despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of alcohol. Seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of alcohol use. Eight, recurrent alcohol use is in, sorry, recurrent alcohol use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Nine, alcohol use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by alcohol. And 10, tolerance as defined by either needing a markedly increased amounts of alcohol to achieve intoxication or a marked diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of alcohol. And then 11 is withdrawal. Yeah. Is the criteria similar for every addiction? It is. It is. Uh, it's so, exactly the same thing. It's just a different substance or behavior. So, um, however, what I will say is that according to the diagnostic, the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, fifth edition, uh, the only ones that are in there are specific substances and gambling. I wonder. I wonder if. Um the Russian version would have a different interpretation because, <laughs> because, you know, it is, it is, um, you, 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 uh, not that I'm an expert in your field, but are there cultural differences around the world with Absolutely. respect to, with respect to how they view addictions? Absolutely. So this book is the American psychiatric association. So that's very specific to, essentially kind of Anglo-y sort of countries mm. um, that are similar in a way to America. So Australia would probably fit quite, quite easily into this book. Mm. Um, however, the important thing is to remember that in Australia, we also have our First Nations peoples uh, you know, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals and families and, mm. and clans who mm. are definitely impacted in different ways by different things. Mm. Uh, we have other cultures that have come from other countries that are impacted by things in different ways as well. So mm. it's, it's important that when <laughs> in my first psychology degree, I diagnosed myself with every single one of the things in this book that is as thick as a brick uh, many times over. And then I realized that it's actually about context. It's about really understanding what's going on for you in your environment. Mm. So for, for some cultures, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's Peru specifically. However, that you know, there's there's some cultures where drinking um, sort of psychedelic uh, plant medicine is mm. part of a, a an actual ritual that is it's almost it's almost a, a religious thing. Um, you know, that would not be considered an addiction mm. because it's specific to that situation. So there's yeah. those 
those uh, those cultural and um, yeah societal norms that completely come into this. Like Carver, for instance, with the Islanders, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. look, I I think um, you know, like when I went to my doctor. Uh, the last several visits. Is this uh, leading he, uh, into a joke? <clears throat> no, no, it's not. It's not leading into a joke. It was, I was quite serious. I was quite taken aback. He asked me how many how many um, glasses of alcohol I had per week, and I tallied it up. And I thought, well, I told him ten, but in my mind it was really fourteen. Like two glasses of wine a day. It was a cultural thing, a Greek thing, and I thought. I thought that that's not too bad, right? Two glasses of wine a day. He said, he said, no, no, you should cut back to about two or three a week. And and I said to him, well, no, in Greece they wouldn't say that. And they wouldn't, and and if I went to a Russian doctor in Russia, he'd say, Well, you're pretty light on. You could deal, you could do with half a bottle of vodka a day. Uh, you know, so there are there are, you know, very big differences in in the the cultural view on alcohol or as an addiction. Um I and I guess in some cultures towards certain psychedelic drugs, but generally, would you say that um, heroin uh, is considered uh, an anathema all around the world? I'm just thinking because the majority of the criteria that I read out just a moment ago were actually associated with the impact that the substance use or behaviour is having on your experience of your daily living. Mm-hmm. And that's completely uh, separate to where you happen to be. If I come from a, uh, you know, if I use your example, well, actually, I'm German and Germans are known for, you know, the big Stein beers and the we love uh, that. parties we love and stuff, My right? My favourite yeah. place, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Germany's great. Germany's yeah. really, really great. Um, However, uh, the the cultural and uh, I guess expectations of me and my family would be having having beer is like drinking water, mm. and that that's completely okay. However, the alcohol could still be impacting on my ability to go to work, my ability to engage in my relationships, my ability to have a healthy mind and body. Uh, you know, all of these things could be completely impacted, irrespective of whether or not my genetic background says that it's okay or it's acceptable mm. or whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So I guess coming back to my point before is addiction is very, very present in Russia. Addiction is very, very oh, yeah. present in, in Germany. It's present everywhere. One of the things that I really realized is addiction doesn't discriminate. However, the options available for people really do. And that's what I'm trying to shift. So how do, how do not how do people find you like by going on the internet, but how does a person know when it's time, when yeah. they've got to see somebody about that? Good about- question. I... Uh, I work from a positive psychology perspective. So what that basically means is you've got minus five, zero, plus five, right? So you've got this scale. And at zero, you're not unwell. 
it's all right. At minus five, the world is ending, rock bottom or things are too hard. And plus five, you're living a full, rich and meaningful life. And a lot of the time people will fight it and fight it and fight it and fight it, whether it's mental health or uh, relationship problems or substance use problems, whatever it is, they'll fight, 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 fight and get down to like minus four, minus five, and then finally go, okay, I can't do this anymore. I need help. And what happens a lot of the time for people who don't work from a positive psychology perspective, they do the work until you come back to zero. So you're no longer unwell. It's just we're not really thriving yet either. Mm. So uh, from my perspective, I think, all right, why stop there? Let's keep going until we get to plus five so that you understand what it looks and feels like and what it takes to live a full, rich and meaningful life. And then as shit hits the fan randomly at some point and, you know, you end up going down a couple of points, you're still in the plus numbers. Whereas if you stop at zero and then something happens and stress builds up, you're already at minus two. So um, my, I guess my answer to your question is the moment that you're questioning it is the best time to come and see someone about it. Whether it's depression, anxiety, stress, it doesn't matter. But you rely on people to be a little bit, um, show a bit of initiative. Um, most people who are, you know, in a, in a world of pain and uh, disconnection and, and, um, and addiction, um, they don't even, they can't even muster enough energy to dial, dial, dial your number. So how, how, do, how do they find you? Uh, yeah, it's a really, really valid point. And this, I guess, is part of the societal things that I'm, I'm looking to change with the Tara Clinic is removing the stigma around this, the, the perception of what addiction is. There's, there's so many people that say, you know, oh, you should just be able to stop or oh, it's not that hard or it's not that bad. I, you know, uh, the, the culture in a lot of different, um, uh, I guess, career spaces as well. There's almost this expectation that if you're working in the corporate world, that you all go out and get your clients shit faced so that you've built a relationship with them in an effective way and that you, you know, you maintain their business. And I kind of look at that and think, gosh, if I was, you know, building a relationship with someone over a couple of lines of cocaine, I'm not sure what kind of uh, relationship that's going to end up being. Um, so one of, the, one of the helpful ways to, I guess, stand up and, and ask for support when you're feeling really low and or you're feeling like it's too hard is by speaking with someone that's close to you. Because sometimes we need someone else's best thinking to help us on our way. And if that person happens to know about the Alcohol and Drug Information Service phone line, for instance, then the two of you could sit together, have your phone on speakerphone, call that number, and then the three of you have a chat to this person on the phone that can support you with uh, information, with guidance, with counselling on the spot. I mean, the Addis people, oh, 
they're the best. Sometimes I just ring them to say hi because I really love that service. It's the best. Um, but yeah, you know, just talking to talking to someone you know can can be helpful. It's important though to choose who you talk to because we might have the person that we talk to that that we know is going to say, "Are oh, you fine?" That's probably not the most helpful person to choose. Probably not. <laughs> a partner in crime, in other what? words. I, mm. I am. I, I guess my. I guess a. I, I have a background in music um, and I've met and known a lot of addicts um, from many different types of substance abuse, et cetera. And I've, I, I wonder whether that, that saying ignorance is bliss sort of works a lot of the time, that people think they're, um, they're fine and they think they're getting through day to day, but they're not really. And even if you say that as a friend oftentimes that can cause um, grief for the person that's telling the person listen you need to see somebody there is a uh, there's a few things that come up from that uh, I agree that there is a lot of drug and alcohol use in the music industry just as there is in the legal industry just as there is in the corporate industry uh, just as there is in the um, medical industry, you know, there's there's a lot of drug and alcohol use in high um, high stakes places. Uh, the way that someone presents to you outwardly doesn't always represent the way that they truly feel inwardly. So I can say to you oh, I'm fine and this is totally great and it's a great thing and yeah, party and woo and inside I could be depressed. Look at, uh, oh goodness, I've just forgotten his name. Um, the the lead singer of Linkin Park, no, not Linkin Park. Um, is it Linkin Park? Uh, he, he, suicide, he, he, um, he completed suicide uh, a few years ago. So he, he was with his family, bouncing around, smiling, happy, all of that outwardly. And then he died by suicide not that long after. I guess, the point, I guess what I'm getting at is oftentimes you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So, Absolutely. So they might be really depressed inside, et cetera. But how, how do you as a friend or a person that's identifying this family member, et cetera, how do you get them over the line? So they're depressed and they're unhappy and they know they've got an addiction, but it's often very hard to get them to, to your office, say for instance. Absolutely. And usually the reason that it's that hard is because the person is feeling forced or judged. So one of the most helpful things that you can actually do is simply share with them your concerns. So something like, Brett, I'm, 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 I'm worried about you. I've noticed that on a Monday when you're coming to work, you're really looking under the weather and you talk about your big weekends and I'm concerned about how it's potentially impacting on you. How are you feeling about it? Ask them questions about how they're feeling and then just listen. We don't listen enough. We, instead of listening, we tell people what to do. We have no idea what's going to work for them. Mm. I don't even know what's going to work for them. Mm, mm. 
I'm, you know, I'm portrayed as this specialist or this expert or, you know, these are all words, by the way, that um, technically I can't be called as a psychologist because, um, yeah, you're not really allowed to be called those words. However, uh, I have a lot of experience in working with addiction as a specific um, presentation and I don't know what's best for someone. I spend the majority of my sessions with my clients brainstorming together to find an outcome that's going to work for them because for me to come into someone's life and go well I know how to do it better than you I just think that's uh it's unhelpful and uh to me it's almost rude the only time where I have the right to do that is if the there is a risk involved that requires me to step in and and make some make some decisions on that person's behalf and those those specific uh, risk things are very very um uh, i guess you know limited so my mandatory reporting guidelines are if you you tell me or i think that you're going to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else or there's uh uh, you tell me about an old person or a, or a young person or someone with a disability that can't fend for themselves is at risk of harm or neglect. Or if you tell me about criminal activity that's happened in the past that hasn't been dealt with by the police and you give me all the details of a serious indictable offence, then I need to make a police report. You know, outside of those really sort of pointy end risk things, I'm not going to make decisions for you because you know your life way better than me. And my goal with what I do and my goal with what I want to educate the public about is understanding what the resources are, how to access those resources, make that just as normal and as okay as calling Lifeline or calling Beyond Blue. You know, we need to have these conversations around addiction in the same way that we're having these conversations around mental health problems because they're the same thing. That was a rant. George, go. Sorry. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for giving me some airtime. Sorry, I've been <laughs> hogging it all, haven't I? Sorry. My apologies, Brett. I love you, brother. Uh, um, <laughs> the question I have is, um, well, it's more of an observation. We're complicated creatures. I mean, why is it? Why is it that we're, uh, of all the animals in the, in, in the world, we're, we're a species that, has so much complexity and has addictions because I, I doubt that any other animal, animal, any other animals in the animal kingdom have addictions, right? So what is it that makes us so well, such such complicated creatures? I was going to say fucked up, but yeah, fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> what makes us fucked up? I mean, we all have addictions. I, mean, <laughs> I love being asked this question what makes us fucked up that's brilliant um well all right our brain here as you can see is very complex there are a lot of bits to it and we have no idea how the majority of it works uh, uh it's yeah it, I have a crush on the brain. It makes me really happy. So <laughs> it's, and yeah, we don't, we don't know how it works. However, the parts that we do know how they work, um, there are certain parts in our brain that are specific to humans. Um, 
and uh, I guess the way that uh, different animals work, they have different parts of the brain. Um, the main part of the brain that deals with our threat response, um, it you may have heard of fight or flight. Yep. Yeah. So fight, flight, freeze, faint, and fawn is actually the full concept of that part of the brain. And all of those things are useful ways of, of the brain managing a threat. So if our body is cold or teeth jump out of the, the bushes and try to eat us, or we have a, a work deadline and we need to do public speaking and we're worried about that or COVID-19 happens and we're all stuck at home. What happens is our brain perceives all of those things as a threat and it releases all these chemicals into the brain, which I call mush. And mush basically switches off our ability to think logically. So this whole section of the front of the brain is our, um, neocortex and that's the part that does all of the human stuff so language personality um just problem solving all that and the other part that is connected with the um the subcortex so the fight or flight part of the brain is uh how do i put this it's hard to have this conversation without drawing it because I usually kind of draw and point to things. Um, give me a second to gather my thoughts. All right. So the neocortex is designed to allow us to have logical thinking and higher order thinking. Mm -hmm. The subcortex, which is underneath that, is connected to the fight or flight part of the brain. And it also is the part that releases dopamine. So we've got mush, which is the I'm scared of something is, that's about to eat me hormones. And then we've got dopamine, which is the yay reward system. Hooray for the happiness of whatever that was. Mm -hmm. Right Now, when we think of substance abuse or uh, some sort of behavior like gambling or sex or food, um, or food actually impacts your bloodstream the same as the others. So anyway. Put food in with substances. Um, however, both of those things, they produce dopamine in the brain, which directly links it to survival. So we have this concept that if I have, uh, if I'm feeling distressed, so there's mush in my brain, mm. I'm not thinking logically anymore. And my brain says to me, actually, I know what fixed that last time. We had some alcohol. So let's do that because that kept us alive before. And then when you drink the alcohol, it produces dopamine, which is the brain's message for, yay, we won. And it, can, it keeps that kind of connection, I guess, stronger. So that, that dopamine connection is what drives people. Is that what you're saying? That, that, um, so, so, for example, uh, using, using your definition, a, a serial high. killer. Well, a serial killer could be a, 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 an addict, yes? Could have an addiction because he's searching a searching for that dopamine fix i well uh i guess firstly i don't i don't tend to call people addicts i i, I say that Sorry. they're living with addiction no please don't apologize um however with um with serial killers 
that's a kind of colloquial term for mm. what's now been changed to uh, antisocial personality disorder. Mm. And there are a lot of things in there. Now, I'm not a forensic psychologist, so I don't specialize in this area. However, my understanding is that there is a lack of empathy or a lack of ability to have empathy in the brain. And what empathy does is it allows us to think about what's the impact from someone else's point of view. So I, the reason that I don't kill people is because I, I know that that would be very scary for them or that that would be wrong um, or, you know, those sorts of things. However, if I don't have empathy, if you took empathy out of my brain, I wouldn't know that that was scary for them. I wouldn't know that that was wrong. It's something that I don't have the capacity to kind of hold on to. Mm. So empathy is extremely important to keeping us all safe and well. Um, however, there, there is definitely, I would say, a link between the rush that you get from doing something that is risky and the concept of it potentially being an addiction. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like that could be, you know, driving fast in your car. It's or, that rush. Yeah. Seeking. And, and I guess that, that's what people with addiction um, normally um, are seeking, but it's to offset, from what, I, from what I understand, it's to offset the way they're feeling about life. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. A, a lot of the time, addiction isn't to get a high. Addiction, is, the substance use is done to feel normal. Yeah, right. So it's, wow. not, it's not like chasing the constant high. No, because there are one of the first places that I worked was an inpatient private psychiatric hospital and I was running their addictions groups there. That's how I actually started in addiction myself was from that job. Um, and one of the first groups that I sat in on before I started working there, there was this, this person who was there to, um, to deal with their methadone dose. And I was speaking with him outside of group just to kind of understand a little bit more about his experience and how he's got to where he's got to and what the decision-making was. And he drew this really brilliant, easy diagram, which basically had uh, the, the, you get a really big sp a spike the first time you use and then it drops down to kind of normal. And then the next time you use, you, you, get a, you get a spike. However, the drop goes under normal and then it comes up. And then the, um, the next time you use, again, it's dropped down a little bit lower and it goes further underneath normal. So as you continue to use, the the way that we experience the substance or the, the hit that people talk about is it never actually feels the same. It's, it's kind of just gradually dropping down and dropping down. Mm -hmm. And then after time, your high is actually under what your zero was to begin with. Mm. So you never actually, while you're using, get up into that sort of positive feeling. Physiologically, that must be a terrible place to be. Addictions 
are things that get in the way of you being able to live a full, rich and meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I, I haven't found myself in a situation where that is present. The only time where that was present, I guess, was for me when I was smoking cigarettes as a teenager because I noticed that I would get agitated if I wasn't able to sneak away and have a cigarette. Um, however, now in my adult life, I don't experience that. Uh, so I don't really know whether that's a, a, a juicy conversation to have. <laughs> well, your, par- your parents would be very proud of what you just said. I went to, I, I just, it occurred to me that it sort of went full circle, really. We got back to the start of you being a, a young uh, woman and uh, figuring out that this was your path. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's, which, which is quite amazing, really. Cool, huh? <laughs> that's cool. I, I, feel, I feel really, really grateful and humbled to be able to do exactly what I'm meant to be doing in this world. It's really awesome. Mm. Well, yeah. Well, um, I'm in my fifties, and so is George. No, and we, no. and we, you don't look shade over sixty-five. <laughs> <laughs> and we're yet to figure out what we're going to do when we grow up. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah, so, way so, ahead of us. <laughs> no, we're just a couple of fat middle-aged men trying to make sense of the modern world. That's it. Yeah. Oh my goodness, have you guys watched Life Below Zero? No. What's that? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, completely off topic. So Life Below Zero is, uh, I think it was done through the National Geographic channel or something. Um, and uh, you can get it on Google Play at the moment. It used to be on Netflix, which is where I found it. Um, however, it's basically following all these people who live in the uh, Arctic Circle in Alaska. And there's this one woman, Sue, who says, I'm a 50 year old fat chick that lives on the tundra and you know talks about that all the time so when you said that I just thought oh my gosh you're yep. like Sue yep I probably need to be out there with Sue so <laughs> <laughs> my name is Sue um I think that's a song uh so Tara how do people get in touch with you personally you can find me through the internet uh, my business is called the tara clinic and tara stands for therapeutic addiction recovery assistance Ooh. and Clever. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah that name just kind of came to me while i was driving along the m4 wow <laughs> yeah i thought it just meant your name <laughs> so did i <laughs> Because I, uh, I've always known that the Tara Clinic wasn't going to be about me. It wasn't, it wasn't ever going to be a private practice uh, because there are so many people that need support that I would never be able to support everybody. Mm. Like I just couldn't mm. on my own. Like you said before. Eight hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no way. Uh, so I felt like it was important to have something that was discreet enough that you could say that you could walk past it and not really necessarily know what it was so that when someone walks through the door if they're worried about being seen then it's okay because it's just the Tara clinic um however it has it has more meaning to it and uh one thing that I've been really grateful for growing up was having my name 
every single place that I would go to, I would meet someone from a different cultural background or different languages. And in and Tara means so many incredible things in different cultures and languages that it just made sense to call the business Tara. Mm, it's, um, easy, it's easy to pronounce, easy to spell. Yeah, mm. but Tara.com was taken, so it had to be the Tara Clinic. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. okay. So that's how people get in touch with you. And uh, last but not least, um, you picked two songs because um, we always finish our interviews with a song, and I picked one of those two. Mm-hmm. Can you guess which one I picked? I have a feeling that you probably picked, picked the mental health one. Uh, is that okay? Yeah. Yes, I did. I thought so. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess you're smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the ability for deductive reasoning is in the front part but of your brain you and go. I've got that, mine. And there's lots of front brain in your brain. <laughs> in your case, it's pickled, so it doesn't work well. <laughs> mine isn't working, that's right. Tara, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, – you're such a remarkable and inspiring person. Yes. Um, I, I guess both George and I feel privileged. I, I certainly do. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can get you back again sometime in the future to talk about the, the situation that the world's in at the moment. Thank you so much. I, I completely feel exactly the same about being here. I'm so grateful and it's been an absolute blast to have a chat with you guys. And I'm just really grateful that you felt that this topic was was important or useful or interesting for your audience. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here and I would love to come back. No, that, that'd be great. Is that okay, George? Yeah, yeah right. all, I, all I can say is, damn you, Tara, damn you. <laughs> damn you. I was, I was looking forward to sneaking off and having a couple of cheeky beers this afternoon, but I, I'm, I'm rethinking that. And I am here and I am ready to support whoever whoever feels that they might benefit from from having a chat with someone that's not going to judge them for whatever's going on. That's fantastic, Terrific. Tara. Thank you, Tara. We'll see <laughs> you, you soon. Thank you, Tara. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Wake up with a knot in my chest. Tried everything just to get out of bed. It ain't working. It ain't working. Sometimes I can get like this. Cover it up with a smile on my face. But I'm hurting. I'm still hurting. There are days when the world gets Sleepless nights, I've had way too many When it's late and no one's around, around Alone in my room and the tears start pouring Wishing the nights were still the morning But tonight I'ma let them fall down, fall down Cause it's okay not to be okay It's okay if you feel the pain Don't gotta wipe your tears away Tomorrow's another day It's okay not to be okay It's fine as long as you know, as long as you know, everything is gonna be okay, 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 as long as you know, as long as you know, everything is gonna be okay, okay, look at you, look at me, we all going through it if you look beyond the surface, beyond the surface, so what do I do? Just wear it on my sleeve Maybe then, maybe then you believe that I'm hurting That I'm hurting There 
Everything's gonna be okay. I'm not alone. 